0: We had a little technical difficulty the first service. All right. You know, um, every now and then when people ask, like, is worship at your church contemporary or traditional, I always have the same answer. I say at our church, everyone suffers. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, um, just in the spirit of fairness, um, I have heard and continue to hear about how much people appreciated me preaching the four horsemen of the apocalypse on Mother's Day. And so just in the spirit of fairness, the fathers will be, get the plagues today. So there you go. Um, how about I pray for us and we'll jump right in. So Father, I pray that you would just come and that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. On one hand, it gets very sort of... Um, confusing or it gets it it seems to be things are wound up in the book of revelation on the other hand i pray that you would make uh, it abundantly clear and what i pray that you make abundantly clear is the gospel of jesus i pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking in jesus name we pray these things amen and amen well we're coming to to the end we're starting a new chapter chapter eight today in the book of revelation but also in the book of revelation there, there are all these sort of series of things and we're finishing up one series and we're moving to another and so in some sense i've got to give you some background or some review if i get if i reviewed you as much as i wanted to review every week we'd never get anything done and be, because uh, ask someone beside you has been here what the burger king principle is right you can't say everything anytime you say something otherwise you end up saying nothing at all in other words i can't to give you the whole background but i've got to give you some especially as we transition from one thing To another, Let me remind you, I'll read read you something from a book uh, by Eugene Peterson on the book of Revelation called Reverse Thunder And he says in that book, he says, I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ I've read it all before in law and prophet, in gospel and epistle Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. So if you remember, I've told you over and over again that really the book of Revelation isn't new. It's just like every other book of the Bible in the sense that it points us to the same place. It points us to the person and work of Jesus. Now, where do we sort of get off track when you look at the book of Revelation? And I'll do this by way of review. Is when we, start, when we have the wrong glasses on. In other words, any time you read the book of Revelation, or you read any book, you're always wearing some kind of glasses. And in the book of Revelation, there tend to be four different prescriptions, if you will. One prescription is the preterist prescription. What does a preterist believe about the book of Revelation? They believe that everything in the book of Revelation has already happened. So they read it and they say, well, this must be Rome or this must be something, the the temple's destruction in AD 70. It's all past. So um, while the preterist says everything has already happened, the futurist, what do you imagine they say? Everything is going to happen, at least everything after chapter 4. In other words, they read it and they say everything in here is going to happen someday. And just from what we've learned so far, some things that we've read have already happened, even in the book of Revelation, and some things are going to happen in the future, just from what we've seen in the first seven chapters. So what about the, is there, are there other views? Well, yeah, the historicist view, which you may, if you remember I called it sort of newspaper theology. You read the book of Revelation and then you read the newspaper and you say, hey, this says there's going to be earthquakes. And then there was just an earthquake in India or, or, or in Guatemala, and you said all the end times must be happening right now. And that was the predominant view for most of church history up until, I don't know, a few hundred years ago. Turns out it's probably not correct. And then the final view is the idealist view, which the idealist view basically says, I'm not sure what's happening here or when it happened. But there has to be some kind of spiritual truths here. It, it has to be worth something to us. And you remember what I told you, out of the the preterist, futurist, historicist, and idealist views which we would be using, we'd be using the bestest. And the bestest way to look at the book of Revelation is to view it through the lens of the gospel. That the glasses we would wear are the, the same glasses that we would wear when we read the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and all the way through. And what do those glasses tell us? Those glasses tell us that the whole Bible is one story And it takes us one place, and that's to the person and work of Jesus Christ in the redemption of his people. All the way back to the very first verse of the Bible, everything is moving us in one direction. And where we get off track is when we start to, to look for something else in the book of Revelation. And so if you believe the book of Revelation is an exposition of the person and work of Jesus, then the question is what's going on? And I think Peterson's right. It's giving us not new information, but a different way to see it. And it's pulling together things we otherwise might not have thought of. So let me give you another example. Remember I talked to you before about this whole idea of recapitulation. Right? That's a big long word. And basically it just means repetition. And I don't know why theologians just didn't say repetition. Maybe it sounded better. But we're looking now, we've we've just we're coming to the end of seven seals, and then we're entering into this period in the book of Revelation of seven trumpets, and then we move from the seven trumpets to the seven bowls of God's wrath. And what is recapitulation basically saying? It's just this, that there are not three different ways to look at the same history, but three more intense ways to look at the same history. In other words, what you see happening in the seals is the exact same thing you see happening in the trumpets that we're going to look at today. And what you see happening in the trumpets is the exact same thing you're going to see in the bowls of God's wrath. The difference is, is it's not necessarily looking at it from a different perspective. It's looking at it from a different intensity. And so for those of you who are adults, you may, if you've ever seen someone wear a jeweler's loop, right? So you put your gospel glasses on and you read the seals and they make sense and then you flip down another one. You know what I'm talking about? You're, you're looking at me like you don't. You flip it down and so it's a magnifier and it's more intense. You flip another one down and it's more intense. And if you don't know what an eyeglass eye loop is, you certainly have seen uh, uh, the Santa Claus 2, Right? Have you seen the Santa Claus too? Remember they find out the Santa Claus clause is that he has to be married. And he's like, I don't believe that. And there's a a business card. I don't know why they they just don't pick it up and pull it close to his face. But instead, it's way far away. And they start flipping down magnifying glasses until he can finally see it. And that's what's really happening here in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of God's wrath. That it's as if a magnifying glass is flipped down. And each time, you actually don't see it from a different perspective. You see it at a different level of intensity. And so I hope that makes sense as we go along. Basically, I have an outline for you today. To Really, only two things we're going to look at in the sense of an outline. First is the power of prayer. Second thing we'll look at is the ministry of misfortune. Or if you're even more grim than that, I originally put the ministry of misery. Okay. So we're going to to look at the power of prayer and the ministry of misfortune or the ministry of misery. That misery has a great part to play in God's plan for the good. So before we continue on, remember I've got to keep reviewing because what John does is he seems, it's almost like a mnemonic device, is he attaches one chapter to the chapter that came before it. So it makes it almost impossible to preach one chapter without bringing the other one in. And so remember we did the the seals. The first four seals were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they were basically bringing judgment upon the earth. And it wasn't the kind of judgment that was almost proactive. It was just man's inhumanity against man. And people often ask me, you know, Tommy, do do you think God is judging America? And I would say, no, not proactively. And they said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, there's a sense in which we just, You reap what you sow, and that is also judgment. So if you make poor economic decisions, you reap poor economic consequences. If you make poor moral decisions, you reap poor moral... So God doesn't have to punish us in the sense all he has to do is let the horsemen loose to do what they do. And Christians are just as vulnerable to suffering as people who are not Christians. And then we saw in the fifth seal, the saints under the altar saying, God, how long until there's justice on the earth? We've been persecuted. How long? And he says, rest a little while. Fortunately for them, A Little while isn't that long. And the very next seal, seal 6, is when judgment starts to begin. And all of the seals begin at the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. All of the end times begin. And so judgment begins in seal number 6. And that brought us to not seal number 7, but chapter 7. Because the last thing that seal number 6 asked was who can stand? Who can stand the day of God's wrath? That's how chapter 6 ended, with God's wrath. And we found out it was those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And after we find that out, then we go to chapter 8, and we begin to sort of jump in to what's happening here. And so, let's look first at the power of prayer, the seventh seal, verses 1 and 2. And verse 1, he says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a ha- half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. The first thing I'll just point out to you is we're at the seventh seal and he says the seventh seal was opened but before it actually works itself out he inserts the trumpets. So they're actually linked together. So some people say the reason for this silence is just to to make way for the trumpets. And I think really that's not true to the Bible you see, remember I told you if you know the Old Testament you understand the book of Revelation more or you understand it better and in the Old Testament one of God's primary metaphors for judgment is silence it's silence silence and think about it. So judgment has commenced and suddenly there is silence in heaven for a half hour. Remember chapter 7, all of creation was worshiping. All of creation was singing and praising God and singing hallelujah. And suddenly it's quiet for a half an hour. Do you know how difficult that would be for us? I'm guessing some of you got a little bit uncomfortable during the confession of sin. You know how long I let you go in that? Remember I said, let's take a moment, confess our sins silently. 30 seconds. I was starting to get a little squirrely. So for a half an hour, there was silence in heaven. What's going on? Silence, in some sense, is the culmination of God's judgment. We'll sing the last hymn today. Let all mortal flesh be what? Keep silent. That the culmination of God's judgment is. Silence on one hand. On the other hand, silence is also the beginning of God's new creation. There's, there's this primeval science, silence that happens before creation. And is there a way that new creation and judgment might come together? And if you answered yes, you're right. Among other places, in the book of Exodus, when Israel passes through the Red Sea, Israel is reborn, as it were. They're given new birth. Egypt, on the other hand, is silenced throughout the bible it says to, for the nations that god has judged for them simply to be silenced and so what has caused this silence what is the purpose of this silence is it just to, to make a dramatic pause you know it might be because they're in the middle of a worship service so there might be a dramatic pause but what is what's behind it all and the answer i think might be a little surprising to you it's the prayers of the saints look at verses three and four In verse three, it says, "And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer, with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel." So, what what is behind the silence? It's the prayers of the saints. And I have not read any commentator, liberal or conservative, dispensational or amillennial or anything else, that doesn't believe that the prayers of the saints here are also the the, the same prayers that are offered in chapter 6. Remember in chapter 6 they said, how long? How long before you bring judgment upon the earth? How long until you do it? And then God starts commencing judgment and then we start the cycle over again. But it doesn't start with the horsemen, it starts at the prayers. And so the saints offer up their prayers and it is silent. I don't know if this is exactly what's happening, but there's a sense in which the prayer is so important that God tells all of the heavenly hosts, i got to hear this. When you pray, do you you think in those terms? That my prayers, the things that I offer, are so important that God wouldn't tell the angels to hush for a while. I need to hear this. You see, as you move in, you're going to find out how much more important... The prayers are in the sense of... Remember in chapter 7 that the saints formed an army. 144,000 is a census, and a census is what you do when you're getting ready to go to war. And then he turns around and says, Behold, I saw a great multitude or a great army. And the question is, how does the church wage war? Well, we wage war in the exact opposite way that the kingdom of the world does. We wage war the same way Jesus does, by giving up our lives. But we also wage war through prayer. I mean, it's a cliche. If you've been around church for a while, they'll say, Oh, Millie, she's a what? Prayer warrior? And on one hand, it's a cliche. On the other hand, it's actually true that when you pray, you are waging war, that one of the primary tools that God has given Christians in the war that they wage against the kingdom of this world, against their own hearts, is prayer. And the question is, how come we don't take advantage of it? You know, we're teaching a class now on prayer, if you haven't been there, The Praying Life. And I love how the book opens that we're basing on it. He basically says that prayer is the last bastion of legalism. That in other words, we preach grace and we talk about grace, but when it comes to prayer, we almost don't do it because we're afraid we're going to do it wrong. And what you see in the book of Revelation is the saints just being completely honest. God, how long, how much longer is it going to be? How much longer until there's justice? Do you pray like that? Do you believe that's going to happen? In other words, if you like me, oftentimes you pray and it's sort of like almost a duty. Okay, I prayed, I said my prayers, prayed for my wife, Pray for my children, Pray for the elders, Pray for this, and then I go about my day. But what if I prayed, what if you prayed and thought, when I pray for my family, when I pray for officers, when I pray for anything else, that actually it is going up to the throne of God and it is actually making a difference. What the book of Revelation says is that our prayers make all the difference in the world. In fact, our prayers are part of the means that God uses, to bring about his judgment on the earth. That's a reason, but there are means that he uses. Notice verse 5. It says, Then an angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Every time you see that combination, it has to do with the last days. It has to do with the end times. Revelation 11, Revelation 16. I mean, at the very end, the very final thing, the very final judgment is when you hear thunder, lightning, and earthquake. And what has caused the thunder, lightning, and earthquake? It's the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints have brought about God's judgment. Now, the beauty of the gospel is this, that judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. In other words, when you read the Psalms, and the psalmist rejoices over someone being judged, well, the reason they're rejoicing is because their enemy was judged. That means they were actually saved. And so in the, in the providence of God, the prayers of the saints are actually big. And I put it down here. The prayers of the saints are the catalyst for the completion of, and f- of final judgment and salvation. You you believe that? I mean, think about it. If, if, if our church, if every church believed that our prayer was actually the catalyst for God bringing completion to all things... Instead of sitting around wondering how miserable it's going to be or who's going to become the next president, and if he does, what are we going to have to do? Where should I do with my 401K? All of these things. What if instead we really believed that our prayers were the catalyst for God winning the nations, for God judging those who are against Him, for those who oppose Him, all of these things. And here's the truth. The truth of the matter is that they are. In fact, we've been talking as a staff, how do we implement this in the church? I'm convicted of it. If prayer is one of the primary ways we, we wage war, how come we don't do it more often? I mean, some of you probably pray a lot, but as a church, we don't that much. That needs to change. Where do we go next after this? Oh, my fit, the ministry of misfortune, and again, the ministry of misery. Before we jump in here, you know, you could probably do a, a three or four lessons on this one text, and I'm not going to. Fortunately, I guess, for you. But as we, continue, as we jump into the trumpets, I want you to keep in mind a few things that you see here. One, you see the, the plagues of Exodus recapitulated. In other words, repeated. The plagues come up here from the book of Exodus. So remember, Exodus is God delivering uh, Israel. The other thing that you also see is the book of Joshua, really. Especially when Joshua uh, fought the Battle of Jericho. Do you remember what happened at the Battle of Jericho Six trumpets, and on the seventh trumpet, the walls came down, judgment was over, God was finished. And what you see with the seven trumpets is six trumpets of warning, and one trumpet at the end that ends everything. And it's sad. Because at the end, guess what? It's the end. And just like the plagues, the function of the plagues in in Exodus, and the function of the trumpets in Joshua... On one hand, they bring judgment with them. On the other hand, the same thing that brings judgment also brings warning. It brings, at, at each point, you have a chance to sort of repent and turn back from whatever it is you're doing. So let's jump in and look at the trumpets real quick. Verse 6 is sort of a transition. He says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And I thought you'd just find it interesting that these angels had names. I was reminded of this. Um, the other day I was watching Ancient Aliens. Do you ever watch that? The guy with the big toupee. Anyhow, it's good. Uh, he was convinced that the seven angels were actually aliens who brought us the advanced technology. But the first one you see, actually, they have names in the Apocrypha. Uh, the Book of Tobit, you see Raphael, and then the Book of Enoch, you see Uriel, Raquel, Michael, who you should know, Seriel, Gabriel, and Remyel. And I, remember when I was in seminary, I was surprised. I wanted R.C. Sproul was one of my professors. And he said, the Bible is our ultimate authority for faith and life. He said, but the Apocrypha is probably the second most important book that we have. And Protestants don't tend to read it. Either way, that's where you find out the names of these seven angels. thought you'd find that interesting. And so as we move on to the first trumpet, look at verse 7. He says, the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire, mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and grass and all the green grass was burned up. So the trumpet blows, and all of a sudden you see things that are just like the plagues happening. There was a plague of hail. There was a plague of blood. Some people think that fire here actually ties us back to the famine that one of the horsemen brought because the, the, um, the horsemen brought famine with him, and that's what's happening here on the earth. But what you're going to see is this growing uh, tension because the first Trumpet brings destruction upon the earth. In other words, the ground, the, the, the terrestrial place where you can walk. Okay. And that leads to the next part where the second angel says, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So on one hand, as judgment begins to commence... His kingdom up there. As judgment begins to commence, it moves from the land to the sea. It's sort of a natural progression on one hand. But one of the most fun things to do is when, again, when people like the guy from Ancient Aliens and even a lot of biblical scholars read this passage, and they read that when he blew his trumpet, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And they speculate any number of things. Most people speculate. Maybe John saw a meteor or a meteorite going and it landing in the sea and it causes such destruction. It's sort of like, you know, the theory that an asteroid destroyed the dinosaurs kind of thing. Maybe that's what he's seeing. And there's all kinds of theories like that. And I think every single one of them is wrong. Because if you read the Old Testament, what you see is this, that when God wants to judge a kingdom, he says it's like throwing a mountain into the sea particularly when God wants to judge Babylon and Babylon is sort of the 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 archetypal city in the Old Testament and in the New Testament for the kingdom of this world and so when God wants to judge a kingdom he throws it into the sea as if it were a mountain so on one hand you see the, the 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 judgment sort of creeping from the land to the sea on the other hand at the end of all time and in the process even of the end times happening God, The kingdom of God overcomes the kingdom of this world. And it is thrown down. And that's what's happening here, I think. Because if you look at the big scope of history, do you believe in the context of the gospel that God eventually will win? And the answer, I think, according to the book of Revelation, is yes. Trumpet number three says, "...the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on a third of the springs of water." The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So you've gone from the the earth to the sea to now the water supply being polluted. But what's more interesting is if if you believe that, according to the Old Testament, to throw a mountain down is to throw a kingdom down and to overcome it. This passage sounds an awful lot like Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 is where Paradise Lost. Milton, I think, got a lot of his ideas for Paradise Lost. That's where the great day star is thrown down who tried to ascend to be above God. In other words, when you read a few verses down, it actually, the stars, we find out, are angels. The stars that are thrown down because when we get to the next seal, it says the star, that this other star, was given a key to the bottomless pit. And he opened it. In other words, they're actually angels, at least in the book of Revelation. And so this star that's being thrown down is an angel. If you believe that this is a an int- more and more intense view of what's going on, in uh, Revelation chapter 12, you see the same events happening over and over again, except the, the, the one that is thrown down is actually given a name. His name is Satan. And when he is thrown down, he is angry. And he begins to, to bring about punishment on anyone he can see. Someone asked me, I did the fourth and fifth grade Sunday school this morning. Um, it sort of stumped the pastor. Day there was a question about Satan. Why did he do this? Why did he do that? And here's the beauty of of God's sovereignty: that Satan only works for God. In other words, he's not. It's not God is all powerful and Satan's all powerful, and there's a work. You know, they're they're fighting each other till end time. That God has thrown him down, and Satan then goes about looking for someone to devour. And as we've continued to see in the book of Revelation, some trials and tribulations, one person will experience a trial and it will increase their faith. Another person experiences a trial and it makes them harder. And again, that should sound an awful lot like the book of Exodus. Right? We read from extra-biblical literature as the plagues were coming down upon the Egyptians, some of the Egyptians actually were softened apparently. Certainly Israel saw what was going on. Pharaoh, on the other hand, was hardened. And so as these things continue to come down, I believe that God is saying, it's here saying, that the kingdom of this world will be thrown down, The, the, the king of this world, Satan himself, will be thrown down, and that leads to the final trumpet, or the fourth trumpet, in verse 12, he says, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. So what's happening here? Did you ever ask yourself why it's all thirds? I mean, it's not just this verse. Earlier, we saw it was a third of the earth, and a third of the sea, and a third of the water. Why does everything happened in thirds? And the answer is just this, that when you're reading the book of Revelation, fractions equal mercy. Fractions equal mercy. Like when I was growing up, I wasn't good at math, fractions were horrible, but in the book of Revelation, they're a good thing. Fractions equal mercy. In other words, when, when as judgment, God decides he's going to bring about the end, it doesn't say he destroyed all earth and all water and all people and all light. You see, this has to be symbolic. Because to get rid of a third of the sun would be just as devastating as to get rid of the whole sun. The point here is that there is is mercy because it's not everything. The question is, is when you see events happening, when you see trials, when you see tribulation, what are you going to do? Do you take it as a warning to repent, to turn from your sins and turn to God? Or does it make you harder? And I think that's the exact intent here because you remember what the ninth plague was? The ninth plague in Exodus was darkness. You see, in the book of Exodus, you had all these plagues, and the last one was darkness. And after darkness, that's when people are going to die, right? It's a plague upon the firstborn. And so if you're familiar with that story, you realize that that the fourth trumpet, by leading us to this point, is saying that this is the last one. This is your last chance to turn and to trust the gospel. Now, am I saying that's right this second? You know, it might be. But the point is this, is that it's all according to God's mercy that all of the signs that were given, all of the things that were given in order to uh, drive people to repentance or to make them harder and judge them. You see, when you look at the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of God's wrath, you see what ha- you see them come in uh, fractures They come in four at a time and then two and then one. And after you leave the fourth trumpet things begin to get really nasty. In other words, at this point, judgment has been creeping closer and closer and closer to people. started on the earth, and then it goes to the sea, and then it spreads throughout the water, and then it affects the cosmos, and at some point, judgment will actually be right upon you. And when you get to the fifth seal, it is. When you get to the sixth seal, it's even closer. When you get to the seventh, or the seventh trumpet, it's just too late. And it's heartbreaking. I was talking with Jamie this weekend about it and I couldn't help but well up with tears because it's heartbreaking when people won't see the, the warnings and trust Jesus. And so what, what, what are we to make of this? Where does this take us? I think the whole thing um, leads us basically to a tale of two seals. Are they up there? Many of you know I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by scientific stuff and I've watched National Geographic and Discovery Channel of course history because that's where swamp people are um, and you see the, the, the sharks that you see in front of you, the shark that I guess is to your left, basically when, a, when you're a baby seal and a great white shark is coming after you there are two ways to respond, one is healthy and one is not the shark that is to your left, or the, the seal that is to your left one, one option when a great white, when a 25-foot when a shark is coming after a 25-inch seal is for you to try and run away. Guess what? That's a bad option. It's futile. There's no way that a seal could outrun a great white. And so whenever a seal tries to outrun a great white, it almost always inevitably ends up being breakfast, lunch, dinner, or second breakfast, something. It gets eaten On the other hand, and and they don't know, I remember hearing about this years ago, they don't know whether mothers teach it to their baby seals or it's just somehow genetic. Some seals intuitively realize that when a huge great white shark is coming at them, the safest thing to do instead of running away from it is to turn and swim right into it. And they get right up to it and as soon as the great white gets close enough, they hop over and they get on its back and they basically just follow it around. In other words, if the great white shark represents judgment upon seals, and I think the seals in South Africa would say that they do, you can either try and run from the shark or you can ride in the shark's wave. One of them is safe, one of them isn't, but the shark is coming either way. And it's the same thing with God's judgment. God's judgment is coming. God's judgment has come and it is coming. And you have really two options of dealing with it. One option is to try and run from it. And if you try and run from it, it will catch you inevitably. If it doesn't have you right now. But it will ultimately have you and you will ultimately pay the price. Or, you can turn around and face the one who would judge you. And when you turn around to face the one who would judge you, what you see is that he himself, the lamb, has already borne your judgment. That the safest place you can be is not running from the judge, but to be in the arms of the judge, to be riding in his wake. And the question is, will you do that? It's really a pretty simple choice, I think. You know, I was thinking this morning, it's Father's Day, and I thought, you know, let me, let me give you a father tip. <laughs> you know, one of the things I remember I did when I was a kid, or when my, my children were small, it's one of the only things I think maybe I did that was right is I remember when I would come home and my wife would be frustrated and maybe one of my daughters had hit another one. Anyhow, it was, time, it, was, basically, it, was it was time for daddy discipline. That's a, big, that's a bigger thing than just whatever mom does. And I can remember taking my girls into the, to the bathroom where we could have some quiet time together. And as soon as we started walking in that direction, you would hear... <laughs> nothing has happened yet. And every time I would sit down and I would look them in the eye, not every time, often, I would say, here's the deal. You can have mercy or you can have justice. What do you want? And they would be quiet. Do you want mercy or do you want justice? If you want justice, I'd be happy to give it to you. You know what my daughters chose 100% of the time? Mercy. Mercy. Who would bear justice when they don't have to? That's what the call of the gospel is. That's what this whole portion of Revelation is saying. Judgment is coming. What do you want? Do you want mercy or do you want justice? Which is it going to be? What's the wise decision? I beg that you would say mercy. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we continue to look at this book of Revelation that we would see the same old truths in a new way. And seeing them in a new way, I pray that they would spur our hearts on to love and good deeds that we might be outwardly faced, that we might realize your, your promised vision for the church, as Jamie prayed earlier, that all the nations would be here, that all every tongue and tribe, and that we would see the gospel working powerfully. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen.